HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Dyed Green on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. Our guest on today's show is Alex Cunningham, who is one of the co-founders of Slane Irish Whiskey, which is a distillery that is located in the village of Slane in County Meath uh, in the Boyne Valley, which is about 45 minutes north of Dublin. And uh, honestly, the whole Boyne Valley, but especially that particular area where Slane is located, is one of my favorite places in the entire country. Yeah, same here. I mean, there are... The, everybody knows we think that entire island of Ireland is quite a magical place, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that, but there are a couple places that I think we've been to that are, um, I don't know, you just kind of are immediately swept up in something about something about the energy of the place, and the Boyne Valley is definitely one of those places. There, yeah, I mean, it has the, the Boyne Valley, especially County Meath, has some of the most important archaeological sites, and it's home to a lot of the more famous myths. Mm-hmm. The Salmon of Knowledge swam in the River Boyne, Slane Castle, where Alex lives and where the distillery lives, is right on the River Boyne. And then, you know, really just a stone's throw away are three Neolithic passage tombs, which are very important to Irish history. So there's a lot there. And then, you know, we would be remiss not to mention the fact that the Boyne Valley um, has some of, if not the best agricultural land Mm -hmm. on the island of Ireland. Yeah. So it makes sense that, you know, Alex's family would have set up shop there and, uh, you know, crops would have been grown there, right? Crops were grown. Crops were grown. And, um, they started distilling in 2008 as a small family-owned distillery and then partnered with Brown Foreman and, and, and in 2015, and that really led to them really growing and expanding their operations. We're both really looking forward to asking them some questions about, you know, how the distillery got started and their connection to the land and to the region. One of the previous guests on the show that we had was were two activists with the Save the Boyne campaign, 
And so the Boyne River is such an important part of this story, and it's being threatened right now by a lot of different things, um, pollution in general, but in particular, there's a campaign to stop the Don Meats plant from dumping wastewater into the river. And the Boyne River, again, is like, it's so closely tied to Slain Whiskey because they use the water from the river in the distillery. So um, really looking forward to asking him about that and getting his take on the campaign. I think, you know, also I'm really looking forward to talking to Alex about the sustainability measures that they have at the distillery and on the grounds of Slane Castle. I believe they have about 1,500 acres of land. We visited before. We've had the pleasure of staying at Rock Farm, which is a a 90-acre organic farm that Alex's wife Karina runs. Um, But when we were there and when we were visiting the distillery in particular, I was really impressed by all of the information that Alex shared with us about the measures that they're adopting to make the distillery as sustainable as possible, which our regular listeners will know is something that is particularly important to me. Yeah. So we'll get in, we're going to ask him about that, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, also, you know, it's kind of cool because he lives in an actual castle, but Slane is actually, um, you know, it's becoming more and more known for the distillery and for the whiskey, which is a relatively new project. But Alex's father put Slane Castle on the map because he started having rock concerts there in 1981 and almost every year since then. Band called U2. Ever well, heard of them? U2 actually was an opener <laughs> for the first concert. They were so, a little band yeah. called U2. Then. They were a little band called U2. But over the years, they've had, you know, all sorts of crazy rock legends play there. Everyone from Metallica to Bob Dylan to Alex, Queen. if you're listening, Enya 2024. <laughs> That's a that's his free Max yeah, Sussman is, suggestion there, right there. This is uh, Max Sussman's cue to sail away <laughs> with his notions because I don't know. Could Enya actually sell um, eighty thousand? I'd t- I'd get about seats. twenty, I'd twenty, ten, twenty thousand of them of the seats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, but it's like it's actually like the more we're talking about what we're going to talk about, the more like there's so much to this lane story here. There's, oh, yeah. There's the whiskey, there's the castle, there's the music, there's Rock Farm. So we're going to focus on the distillery today, but there's there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more we could, could be talking about. Indeed. Without further ado, let's talk to Alex. Yeah. Let's bring him on the show. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on Dyed Green. We're very excited to talk to you. And uh, we've got a lot of questions for you. So we'll just jump right in. Your own story with Slain Whiskey and Slain Castle goes further back. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your family and the history of Slain Castle? Uh, sure, yeah, we do go a little bit further back. Uh, so all the way back to 1703, in fact, when the property was purchased by my ancestor, um, Henry Cunningham, after whom my dad is named and who I started this project with. And we've been on these lands, you know, a long time, but we're new players, I guess, in, in the whiskey game. This estate owned by the family, uh, the land would have been farmed partially by the family and then and then uh, tenants, farmers would have worked it. Originally, it would have been a much larger estate than it is today, uh, but we're still lucky enough to have 1,500 acres. Um, and on that, we do 
a whole suite of different things. But we uh, we got into the whiskey project really as kind of the latest family venture because the key to keeping a show like this on the road is is really diversification, and that and that's what drove the need to start the whiskey project. Can you talk a little more about the starting the whiskey project? I remember when we were speaking, you had told us that there were like a few different contenders for what that diversified project would look like. And I'm wondering like what those were and where, you know, what, and what made you end up settling on whiskey? Well, uh, the first reason we sort of decided to diversify was we had, uh, or dad really had built a brand uh, around Slane. And that brand was really attached to uh, the big music festival that, that happens on the property. Uh, the first gig was in 1981 in the middle of the hunger strikes, which was a difficult time for Ireland. And he had a crazy idea of turning the front garden into an outdoor music venue because he loves his rock and roll. And he felt, you know, music could bring people together. And that's exactly what happened. So we had Thin Lizzy headline the first show and a little known band called U2 played support. And I think around 20,000 people listen to the music that day and um it you know they did he was right there was no trouble that day it was it was all about the music um and that started us on a journey which we've been doing for over 40 years and that built up this brand awareness of, of slain um and he suggested quite rightly that we needed to attach that to something else because we were overly dependent on the income and if we didn't have a gig you know, it was hard to pay the bills. And unfortunately, the pandemic certainly brought that home to roost. So we knew we wanted to diversify, um, but it needed to be something, I guess, that would work well with music, but more importantly, something that would tap into the resources that we had right here on the estate. And Dab is the one that suggested whiskey, and whiskey made a lot of sense for a number of reasons. First and foremost, I love Irish whiskey. And so does dad. You know, I love the history surrounding it. Uh, I enjoy the imbibing of it. It's part of our national culture. And then secondly, we did have those resources. So, you know, we're lucky enough to have some of the best farmland in terms of fertility in the country here, either side of the banks of the River Boyne. And that is ideal for growing cereals, which is what the Cunninghams have been doing for generations. So we were already growing raw material from which you can make whiskey, primarily barley. Then, of course, I mentioned the river. Now, the other thing you need when you're making whiskey is, of course, good water supply. And the River Boyne was historically a source for many distilleries because uh, although we're on limestone bedrock, if you actually draw your water directly from the bedrock, it's going to be incredibly hard. But you want a bit of minerality for the yeast. So what happens is the rain, and we get plenty of that in Ireland falls on the land and it picks up a little bit of minerality before it flows into the river. And that's very important for the yeast and when it comes to fermentation. So <clears throat> we had great water. We had the raw material in terms of the barley. We had uh, a good backstory to attach it to. And then the last thing really was uh, an amazing collection of buildings that had kind of fallen out of use because they were the old stable yards and farmyard buildings. So, yeah, we had a wonderful water supply from the River Boyne. We obviously had the raw materials that we were growing ourselves on our own land. And we had a great backstory to attach the brand to that would align with music. We had a passion for the subject. And then we had this beautiful collection of buildings that were very close to the castle. And this is where the old stable yards and grain stores 
that would have been attached to the farm, but they didn't really suit modern agriculture. So from the 1970s, they kind of fell slowly into disrepair. And what we've actually done is we've brought them back to life sustainably through using traditional building techniques and everything else and given them a new purpose. And that's now the home for the distillery. So all of the ingredients were right. Um, and we feel hopefully now we've got something that's going to help not only keep the family here in Slane Castle, but actually protect this place for future generations of the, and for the public at large. Because one of the really important things about this estate is uh, the cultural and natural heritage that it, it hosts, including everything from the wildlife to the ancient monuments that are on the property. So the whiskey really is a vehicle that allows us to, to sustain this place for the long term. What year was it when you started this distillery project initially? Was that early 2000? The initial whiskey project started back in 2008 um, when we actually launched first under the Slane Castle brand and we sourced whiskey from, from someone else in Ireland, uh, attached our name to it, and we then had a uh, great crack basically going around mainly America, myself, dad, and my stepmom hand-selling the product. And what that proved was uh, that we were onto something in terms of the idea of attaching the slaying story to an Irish whiskey brand. But we were just sourcing the liquor. We didn't have a distillery at that stage. And that really carried on until 2012 when the distillery that we were sourcing liquid from was acquired by another party. And unfortunately, at that stage, they turned the tap off and said, you're not getting any more juice. And I remember going to dad and saying, I've got uh, bad news and I've got good news. Um, this was in 2012. And he said, well, go on, give me the bad news. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, Dad, we're not, we're not getting any more liquid. I'm, I'm afraid the Slane Castle Whiskey Project is, is dead in the water. And he said, well, what the hell is the good news then? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, we have to build our own distillery. <laughs> and and uh, he said, I don't know if that's good news. Um, but uh, in fairness to him, he, he backed me on the idea. And that's exactly what we then set out to do. Now, I had wanted to do that anyway because I know that that is the only way not only to have credibility, uh, but to be able to make the whiskies that you want to make in the way that you want to make them, uh, but also to, to have control and, and not be in a situation where you'd be vulnerable to the whims of, of an external you know, supplier of liquid. So for all of those reasons, we, we then went on this journey to, to create a, a distillery, as I said, in, in the old um, courtyards, literally you know, a good, a good arm, you'd be able to, to hit it from the castle with a, with a stone, like it's right on our, on our doorstep. And so it's effectively now really the heart of the estate, which those buildings would have been historically. How did Brown Foreman come into the picture and what was their role in helping you to get up and running? Well, they came into the picture because myself and dad took a hell of a risk on the project because, you know, when we, when we no longer had liquid from another distillery we had nothing to sell but we decided we were going to try and build a distillery now in order to try and build a distillery you've got to design it and then once you've designed it you've then got to secure planning permission and bear in mind that these buildings quite rightfully are on the national list of protected structures uh, so they are they are heritage um, and that needs to be protected and conserved so it wasn't easy 
to come up with a design that respected that tradition and heritage. But what we did, and my ambition was that when it was said and done, it would look like it was always meant to be here. And I, I hope that's what we managed to pull off. But financing all of that process, you know, took took a fair whack of money. And, and that's ultimately what myself and dad decided to do. But we knew that we would never have the resources to actually build, implement it and, and build this distillery. It was it was going to cost many and many millions of euros to do that. So we always knew we'd need a partner. And for us, you know, as a family, it was important to have someone who thinks the same way that we do. And Brown Foreman were an excellent fit for us because although they are publicly quoted, the Brown family are still very active in the running of the business and in the decision making. And they've been going since 1870. And they do also think about the next generation and beyond. And that was very important to us as a family. So it was really a meeting of minds. Um, it all started with an introduction to um, Garvin Brown, who was um, until fairly recently chairman of the board of Brown Foreman. He's a good character, but uh, more importantly, really holds that family ethos close. And he was the one that instigated for Brown Foreman to start talking to us. And it obviously took time for the deal to happen, but it was finally signed in 2015. And on the back of that, uh, we actually started building the distillery because the project was ready to go. We started building away in January 2016. So what they add to the project now, and this is very important for any startup going into uh, the spirits business, is they offered firstly a route to market, which is immensely important because making whiskey is one thing, but actually the selling of it is 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 probably the biggest challenge. And they also bring technical expertise. You know, they they are uh, very credible whiskey makers themselves. They also offer us access to their cooperage and their casks, which is very important for shaping the flavor profile of our own whiskies. And then last, but certainly not least, is, you know, there is just the, the people. You know, they are they are a great company. They look after their people well. They look after their you know, their suppliers, their partners, and they're just good people to do business with. So we are thrilled with the partnership and we believe that they can help us to turn this into a, a, a credible global brand, which, as I said earlier, for, from our own perspective, is going to help us sustain, you know, this amazing property that we're lucky enough to live in. That's a great segue into talking a little bit about the whiskey itself, which we wanted to give you a chance to talk about. So what type of whiskey do you make and how did you decide to use the three casks and how does that and the rest of the distilling process help make Slane stand out in the world of Irish whiskey right now? Um, so there's, there's quite a bit, I guess, to that question. What, what I'll start with is, is what we did. And I've always been kind of straight up about this. So Irish whiskey needs to be in wood for at least three years before you can call it Irish whiskey. And, um, you know, you need a lot of patience in this business, but we did want to get the brand started. So what we actually did initially, uh, a little bit like when we, we started originally, is, is we sourced some whiskey from other Irish distilleries. And that was malt whiskey and that was grain whiskey. And it was already whiskey. It had been in barrels. In fact, American whiskey barrels, ex-American, which is how the vast majority of Irish and a lot of scotch is made. Because in America, you can only use your barrels once 
And we're, of course, very grateful for that because we can put much good use maturing Irish whiskey in them. So we bought some whiskey from other distilleries. Now, we could have just created a blend out of that a little like we did before and got it out to market um, probably in around 2016, but we decided not to do that. And that was for a very simple reason, because we wanted to put our own stamp on that in terms of flavor profile. Now, the great thing, one of the great things about having access to Brown Foreman is, of course, they are the only whiskey company in the world that make their own barrels. And this gives us access to some wonderful casks. And we recognize that we could actually improve the quality and the flavor profile of what we had purchased by using casks to do effectively, if you like, a secondary extended maturation. Now, that meant staying out of the market, but it was worth it because it would um, give us the chance to, as I said, build additional complexity. So we looked at uh, what we started with, what Brown Foreman might have in terms of their inventory. And uh, the first barrel, so we, used, we actually used three casks, and that's why Slain is called a triple cask whiskey. And the first barrel is comes directly from the Brown Foreman Cooperage, and it's actually a virgin American oak barrel. Now, virgin oak means this is a barrel that has never been used for liquid before. So it's actually how you make American whiskey. This would be a barrel that you would use for American normally. Um, so unusual to use it for Irish, but what was unique is that this was customized specifically for us at Slane, and it's really heavily toasted with a medium char. And when you cook that wood, rather than burn it or char it, it basically caramelizes the wood sugars and you end up with uh, lots of vanillins and that becomes vanilla. And so Slane on the nose has a wonderful hit of vanilla down to that, and that's down to the first cask. So that was the first barrel. And then we thought, well, well you know, we definitely wanted to do more than one. So where do we go next? Now, um, all American distilleries, when they finish their barrels, they basically sell them then into either into brokers or they sell them direct into distilleries in Ireland and Scotland into rum distilleries all over the all over the place. Brown Foreman would actually sell a huge number of barrels into Ireland and Scotland. However, those barrels go into general inventory. And so when you get a barrel, you don't you don't always know what specific American whiskey has been in that. Now, we recognize that we had an opportunity to not take from general inventory. So we decided to focus on one particular barrel, and that is a Tennessee whiskey or Jack Daniels barrel. And that allowed us to do things that were important to me in terms of the blend. If you look at Irish whiskey blends, they're generally fairly easy drinking, smooth flavor profile, and they tend to be quite sweet. I wanted to go heavier on the sweet notes. So as opposed to being a sort of a clear honey, I wanted to get into the heavy demerara sugar butterscotch end of the flavor profile. And that's what this Tennessee whiskey cast does. So it deepens the sweet notes. It also introduces a lovely tropical note in terms of uh, a lovely ripe banana. And that makes for a really rich kind of complex. And if you're using slain in drinks like old fashions or Irish coffees, something where you would traditionally use uh, Demerara sugar syrup anyway, you're already getting that note in the whiskey from, from that second barrel. So that was the two, and we could have used another American one. That would have been the easy thing to do. Um, but of course, we didn't, we didn't want to necessarily take the easiest option. So the third cask, we decided not to go with an American one or a brand foreman one. And the reason for that is 
I think we would have ended up with an Irish whiskey blend that tasted way too like an American whiskey. So we decided to go for European wood instead. And my grandpa, who was the guy who got me drinking Irish whiskey in the first place, maybe a little bit before he should have, but that's another story. <laughs> he loved his Irish whiskeys that had a sherry cask influence. And uh, so Brown Foreman at the time didn't really have much experience of, of, of sherry cask or, or European wood. But when I demonstrated what even just putting a few drops of sherry into the malt whiskey that we had acquired does the liquid, and you can try this at home, if you just add a few drops of sherry into a, into a whiskey and stir it in, it completely transforms the liquid. And what's fun is you're now crossing the grain, which of course is how whiskey is made, with the grape, which is how sherry is made. And when you cross those two things, you get lots of interesting flavors happening. So... Off the back of that, persuaded Brown Foreman to invest in some casks that come from Jerez, which is where sherry is made. And they're seasoned with Oloroso sherry for two years before we get them. Um, and those barrels are brought over from Spain to Slain. And um, we then allow the whiskey to take on those flavors of the sherry. And it, it, it introduces this wonderful... Um, kind of dried fruit like your raisins and your dates and maybe a bit of sultana and then on the finish which is really important you get this lovely kind of slightly dry but almost kind of brown baking spice it's like a kind of clove or nutmeg so so that's what slain is it's basically three separate whiskies because these casts are done totally separately and only then do we blend them together now it took us about two years to do that uh, and now as our own distillates are being made in Slane, they will then start their whole life in, in these barrels and then gradually will start to replace what we purchase from others. So we're in the process of probably 18 to 24 months away. We're now in, you know, we're now coming up to the end of, of 2022. So, you know, within, as I said, 18 to 20, 24 months thereabouts, we'll start phasing our own juice into the blend. So, so that's the first part of the project. And sorry, I, it's a it's a long answer. Uh, well, to it's, the question. you've already uh, succeeded in making me want to pour a glass. So that's perfect, excellent. <laughs> well, that's 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 always that's always a win. Yeah. But 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 that's only part of what we're doing because in addition to to the blend, you know, Slane is an unusual distillery because we actually make all three types of whiskey which again was one of my ambitions was to have a distillery that could do that. So we actually have three copper pot stills for triple distillation. And in that we can make a triple distilled malt whiskey, um, but we can also make a very exciting whiskey, which is triple distilled pot still whiskey, which is kind of the definitive Irish style of whiskey. And that basically introduces unmalted barley into the mash bill. And the result of that is you end up with a wonderfully creamy, spicy whiskey that takes a little longer to mature, but it is a, a lovely, complex, rich, bold liquid. And so we're making that. And then lastly, we're actually making grain whiskey in some column stills that we also have at Slane. And that is unusual because we're actually using... Uh, also unmalted barley and barley combination in that mash bill. And that's, again, going to produce a very interesting single grain whiskey. And then on top of that, you can blend any of those three together to create blends. So that means over the coming decade, there'll be a whole slew of different whiskies coming out of the distillery. But for now, the blend, which I explained, the triple cast blend, which I explained in detail earlier, 
that's that's what we're pinning our colors to the mast on. That will remain the core offering. Uh, and then our kind of higher, our higher end offerings, if you like, are just going to emerge slowly and when they're ready from the distillery over the coming decade. That sounds very exciting. Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air and get a limited release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donations. You can even get your company on the HRN airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Earlier this year when we were visiting the distillery, I think you mentioned to me that it was your grandfather who influenced you to be interested in environmental issues. Can you tell us a little bit about him and what he taught you? Yeah, so he loved his Irish whiskey, as I was saying earlier, but he was also, um, yeah, he was, he just, um, you know, he just adored wildlife. He was, um, you know, he recognized that when he was here, uh, that custodial role of of the of the landscape was important, and then he moved away from Slane. But whenever I would go and visit him, he married, for example, a, a South African lady, and and I would go and see him out um, in southern and eastern Africa, and we would go on safari together and other things. And he he loved bird life in particular. He was very knowledgeable about wildlife and environmental issues in in general. And I guess he just nurtured in me a love of of, of nature and, and how important that is in terms of enriching life's experience, but also the need to try and protect it as well. So, you know, just principles like, you know, you shouldn't take more than you need and and various other, you know, kind of golden rules of, of nature. So I think he, what he did for me is he just kind of opened my eyes and inspired me to, to enjoy nature and, I, you know, what's rewarding now for me and Karina, who's my wife, or who I run uh, the operation at Slane with, what that has taught us is the value of firstly, recognizing what we're lucky enough to live amongst. And secondly, the need that if we want this to continue, we, we need to protect what we have. And ideally, if we can leave things a little bit better than when we arrived, we've done our job. So that's a good segue into what we wanted to talk about next, which is the idea that sustainability has become a bit of a buzzword across all sorts of industries these days. I think in a lot of ways, it seems to have lost meaning as businesses attempt to capture consumers with tales of how green their products are. And yet when we visited you in May, we were really impressed with the work that is being done at Slane, um, both at the distillery and on the grounds. You said before that complete sustainability is a goal. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that um, the distillery is attempting to be truly green. Yeah. um, I mean, the first, first thing about sustainability that often gets overlooked for me is in order to be sustainable, you've got to be financially sustainable as well. Because if you can't sustain the business, then you know you can't continue to to do whatever you need to do. So that that's kind of the first point. But the 
distillery itself, you know, this was a new project, but we had the opportunity to uh, to do things a little differently. So whilst we respect all that's good about Irish whiskey making tradition, and the distillery is quite traditional in that regard, we did have the chance to uh, to look at how it operates. So I, I guess firstly, I'd start actually out on the farm itself. So our main crop that we bring into the distillery is, is barley, both malted and, and unmalted barley. And 15 years ago on the land here, we would have been doing what most farms were, were doing, which is basically you sow, you harvest, you fertilize, you do all the other things that you need to do and you repeat. And you don't give the land a chance to rest and recuperate. And what we're now doing is we've changed our practices. So we have, uh, for example, crops like uh, great crops like beans or uh, beans would be a good example because they naturally put nitrogen back into the soil. They also have a deeper rooting system. So they're going to draw up nutrients from lower down in the soil. You harvest the beans, you cut up the brash, you plow that back in. That then breaks down naturally in the soil and provides fresh organic matter and improves soil structure. And that actually reduces your dependency on artificial fertilizers. So we're trying to wean ourselves uh, onto using less chemicals and artificial foot um, inputs on, on the farm in the cultivation of our barley. We have planted wild bird covers around the edges of some of the fields, and that actually provides biodiversity habitat. Uh, for many things, but including predators that would naturally feed on the pests in the barley crop. And that, that again, reduces our dependency on pesticides, in addition to providing very important biodiversity habitat for other things like birds and bees uh, and, and insects. So that's sort of, that's at the beginning of the chain. And then in relation to water, we're committed to water stewardship. And the River Boyne is a, you know, is a salmonoid river. It's, it is a special area of conservation under European legislation. So we have to be very careful about how we manage our interaction with our water supply, which we are. So we take, obviously, water from the river. We use that directly for process. And then it goes the whole way through. And then the water is actually almost cleaner than when it goes back in the river at the other end after it's been through the whole process. We also harvest uh, water from our new buildings and we can use that rainwater in the process and that reduces our, our water consumption. And uh, again, on the river, we had to build one, one of the things you never want to happen in a distillery is fire, but you have to uh, you have to account for it. So we one of our water retention ponds um so we basically hold a body of water to feed a, a ring main uh to fight fire we actually restored an 18th century mill pond um now the challenge with doing that was the mill pond has a big dam wall and salmon which spawn in the river that feeds the mill pond couldn't get over the mill pond wall so we actually built in conjunction with fisheries a fish ladder which is a series of boulder steps with gravel infill. And this allows the migrating salmon to negotiate their way around the mill pond and further upstream to spawn. And that, that was reopened uh, as a direct result of the distillery project. And we know that salmon are using it. So we try and look after biodiversity where we can, because together with climate change, that is the great environmental challenge of our times is the loss of biodiversity. So, you know, that's... That's some of the peripheral stuff that we do. And then in the distillery itself, 
all manufacturing is going to use energy, it's going to use water um, generally, and it's going to produce waste. So on the energy consumption, we, we use LPG, which is a fossil fuel. Um, I would prefer not to, but there's currently no, no other means that we, we have available. But what we did do is we built in an anaerobic digester into the design of the distillery that will take the byproducts from distillation, which is called pot ale and spent lees. These are basically the carbohydrates that the yeast didn't get to. There's still energy value in those. So we'll be feeding those to an anaerobic digester where the microbes break that down and produce biogas. And that biogas can be uh, can be used directly on site to, um, to help heat the stills. Now, production needs to get up to a certain level before we can turn that plant on. I'm hoping that's potentially about two years away, but it is already built in and that will reduce our fossil fuel consumption and associated carbon emissions by about 30%. So um, we will continue to look at other mechanisms for reducing our electrical or heat load from fossil fuels. Um, and so we're, we're actually currently evaluating a solar PV project as well. Um, so, and then in terms of waste, our ambition is to get to zero waste and we're well on the path to doing that. So all manufacturing, including the production of whiskey, has a negative impact on the environment and will produce carbon emissions. We're just trying to lighten that footprint. And, and I think and hope, you know, we've we've done well on that, but, but you can never be complacent. Um, so we've signed up something called Origin Green, which is Ireland's uh, sustainable food and drinks program. And that sets ambitious targets, which are independently reviewed, including stretch targets. So we try and improve a year on year on what we're achieving in terms of energy, water and waste, but also social and community engagement as well. I think all, all that stuff sounds really incredible. And I'm particularly interested in what you're when you were talking about energy use, and uh, you were talking about fossil fuels, but it does seem like you're committed to continuing to seek out non-fossil fuel energy solutions. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that in particular, like what are the what are the real holdups for someone in you know, an industry the size of what you're you're using to becoming sustainable in terms of energy use? Is it something that you see you know, there just isn't an energy source that's sustainable. I know you talked about potentially putting solar in. Like, what what would it take for you to be able to stop using fossil fuels? Um, so distilleries and breweries need, unlike most manufacturing, they need a lot of heat and a certain load of electricity. Most manufacturing nowadays is actually the other way around. It's a lot of electricity and not much heat. But anaerobic digestion is, is definitely a something that everybody in this sector should certainly consider because you do produce byproducts and those byproducts do have calorific value which can go to microbes to effectively create biogas and that biogas can either be you know in in a brewery or distillery it can actually be fired directly and that's much better than putting it into a turbine to create electricity because you get efficiency losses in doing that uh, and you also create the turbine itself actually creates additional heat. So by burning it directly, you've got a very efficient use of your energy. So it's a great way to reduce consumption. 
As to your other question as to, you know, what the options are for replacing 100%, uh, one possible option could be, uh, could be biomass, but you would need a very sizable plant. And then that, in turn, of course, needs a lot of biomass to feed it. And, you know, the debate around how, how green biomass production, you know, it depends where where this material is coming from you've obviously got you've got timber that you can grow there are uh fast growing grasses like miscanthus there's willow there's lots of things that you can potentially use that might be an answer for us in in the longer term and we'll certainly keep options open but the reason we went for lpg was because a it's a much cleaner fossil fuel uh, but also it ties in very well with biogas and, and so that's why we chose to use it but at the moment, the only one I could possibly see at this stage might be might be biomass. And I guess we'd keep our options open on that. We don't have any plans to do it at the moment. But energy prices in Europe, uh, as we all know, are certainly spiking pretty dramatically at the moment. So I think you know we, we need to stay open to ideas. The estate itself has 350 acres of forestry. Um, and we are implementing right now started on a 10-year program to remove invasive species from that and replacing those with natives and we've actually planted uh, just even in the last two years we planted over 10,000 new native trees in the new woodland and then my dad before that has planted many thousands of trees on on the estate and we continue to also plant hedgerows to allow wildlife to move around the result of that is we will have some level of timber supply coming out of that but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be sustainable to use that to to supply the distillery. The demand would just be too strong. Um, so yeah, I think we'll keep our options open. But by uh, going for a combination of LPG and anaerobic digestion, in addition to having very extensive heat recovery to reduce the demand in the first place. So every time you're heating something up, you're cooling something down. Lots of plate heat exchanges to just make the design of the distillery as efficient as possible. And that's one thing that does get overlooked. I think new distilleries now are, are pretty good switched on, but some of the older distilleries, they just didn't have that designed in. So the retrofitting of this into older distilleries is certainly something that can help to reduce consumption. Yeah, that's great. Um, so right now, food tourism is a growing industry in Ireland and around the world as well, You know, right alongside whiskey. And so I know through Rock Farm, you're really involved in supporting the local food industry through projects like the Boyne Valley Flavors and the Slane Food Circle. So can you talk a little bit about how the distillery fits into the bigger picture of artisan food and drink in the Boyne Valley? Yeah, um, I mean, we're thrilled to be living in a part of Ireland. I mean, Ireland as a, as a nation is is has become a great, it's a great food scene here. Uh, I think, unfortunately, what was happening up until relatively recently is we were producing great primary products, but then they were being exported and the value was being added elsewhere. Now we're seeing a whole slew of fantastic food producers, including right here in Slane. So Slane Distillery obviously is a bigger operation than a lot of the small artisan producers that we're lucky enough to have around us, but we feel that we have a role to support them. So in the castle and the distillery over on Rock Farm, um, which is our own organic farm, you know, we have a farmer's market there, which runs throughout the year. And that is designed to produce, uh, sorry, to support local artisan producers, to give them an outlet 
And whenever we run events on the property, we will also look to uh, to use local producers as much as possible, both in our menus here in the castle or, as I say, for, for private catering or, or events. I think, you know, the great thing about tying in with the RSAM producers, uh, quite apart, apart from the fact that there's, there's some great relationships that come out of it, and that, of course, is a very important part of being part of a community is the relationships that go with it, is um, just the sheer variety of produce that we have right on our doorstep. Everything from cold-pressed oils to fantastic from New Grange oils to, to great cheese producers like Michael Finnegan from Boyne Valley Cheese or Mark Jenkinson from Slane Cider Mill, who's producing some amazing ciders. So that's all there on our doorstep. And I think the distillery's role is to help raise awareness and support those enterprises because they they may be small, but um, the international awareness that Slane generates as, as the brand goes around the world will hopefully drive people to visit this area. And when they do visit this area, we want them to consume what we're also proud of, which is the produce from our region. I just wanted to mention for our listeners who are not aware of uh, Rock Farm, that it is, I believe it's a 90 acre animal and vegetable farm that's located on your property just on the other side of the river from the castle and distillery that your wife Karina runs. That's right. Yeah, it is. It's a rock farm uh, is is about 90 acres and we received full organic status in 2013. It's our kind of lovable experiment in many ways. And by that, I mean, you know, we like to try things there. That, that maybe push boundaries a little bit. So we have uh, we have a lovely herd of Dexter native cattle, which never come into a shed. They spend the whole life outdoors, and because they're small and hardy, they can they can stay out in winter and they don't tear up the land. And they also produce amazing beef. Uh, we have organic pigs as well, who do a great job of rotivating and plowing the land for us, and uh, produce produce fantastic pork products. And then we do grow uh, veggies as well, both for our own consumption, but also for the farmer's market and then for the catering needs of the, of the castle. We uh, have delved into agroforestry where you combine forestry and farming in, in the same landscape. So it's kind of crossover. And then we produce eggs from our own flock of chickens. And then we, we also do turkeys as well. So we're doing lots of different farming enterprises because farms were traditionally mixed farms where you did a little bit of everything. But, um, you know, there's been a lot of intensification and specialization. Uh, but I've learned, I guess, through organic farming that, you know, one of the secrets uh, to life is, is variety. It is the spice of life because through diversity, uh, for example, even in the grass sward, if you have lots of different species of plants going on, you're just going to get more life. So that kind of principle applies to the farm on, on a macro scale as well. So yes, we're doing lots of different things, but what that actually means is we've got more diversity on the farm. And if you combine that with our, our drive to do additional hedgerow planting and tree planting, we, we have a pretty rich landscape on, on the farm. The visitors can enjoy staying in so that's why we launched the glamping so the people can actually kind of switch off and de you know de-digitalize if you like and detox and immerse themselves in a natural landscape and a working farm that allows them to kind of reconnect with each other and and, and with nature and ha- have a, have fun you know whilst they're doing it and i i get a real kick out of watching kids run around on the farm rather than looking at the ipads you know and uh 
and and that that's important to me and Karina and our our kids have kind of grown up with that as well and just simple things like sitting around the campfire under the stars and drinking a glass of slain and taking it all in you know it's a it's a good experience yes absolutely well and we can we can attest to that yeah it's a great experience um Speaking of detox, you know, and everything that you're saying, the, the the river, the Boyne River, you know, is a central character in all of these stories. And, you know, rivers in Ireland right now are facing levels of pollution that are extremely high. There was a report a few years ago and something like 50% of all the rivers in Ireland are, are polluted with nitrogen from runoff from agricultural farming. And at the moment, there is a proposal for the Dawn Meat Processing Plant to release what they would be calling treated waste water into the Boyne River. And so I'm wondering if you're aware of that proposal, as well as the efforts that are being kind of carried out to stop this from happening. We had some of the organizers from the Save the Boyne campaign on the show to talk about this very issue a few episodes back. And so... um, Wondering, like, you know, how you see your role as a as a steward, and in particular uh, of the river, and and with everything that's happening in terms of pollution and climate change and biodiversity, but with with regards to the river specifically. Well, the river, you're right. It is the it's kind of the central heart, I guess, of, of a lot of the stories we've been discussing. Um, it's our water source for the distillery, and so of course we want to protect that. Um, back in grandpa's time, it was actually also the main source of income for, for Slane because it was one of the most uh, revered salmon fishing rivers in Europe in the 1950s. Uh, and then, unfortunately, the government decided to dredge sections of the Boyne and, and completely destroyed the ecology of the river and specifically the spawning of the, of the salmon. The, the ecology collapsed and, and the salmon disappeared. Now, what is exciting is they are back now and the river many decades later is starting to recover. And whilst there, you know, whilst there is pollution still happening, it is a fraction of what it was decades ago. So I think although it could be better and there are individuals who are trying to establish the river's trust for the Boyne. Uh, so I think there's always more to do as far as the Dawn Meats issue is concerned, uh, Myself and Dad and Slane Distillery both made observations on that planning application. And we do have what we believe are very legitimate concerns around it, primarily in that the dispersal models that were included do not take account of the very, uh, the much more extreme variations in flow rates that we're seeing in the river now. So in times of drought, you know, the the river dropped uh, alarmingly low. A, because of climate change and, and longer seasons of drought. But there is also people who, you know, there are schemes that are extracting large quantities of water, you know, many, many more times than, than we would from Slane Distillery. So there's already quite a lot of water coming out of the river anyway. So if you couple that with drought situation and then you try and push discharge into the river of any kind, the effect of that is going to be magnified. And that was really what our primary concern was. Uh, any risk to oxygen depletion in the river when it's already under duress. And we saw this uh, previously 
in a drought a couple of years ago where salmon were actually bleaching and, and suffocating. And quite a lot of dead fish were found. And that was, you know, and that that was just nature causing that. So, you know, if you start, if you start stressing that further, it, it can only be detrimental. They just need to look at other alternatives for managing that that discharge. And I think even natural solutions uh, on the farm, for example, we have something called an integrated constructed wetland, which basically processes gray water using plants to break it down rather than mechanical or chemical means. There are alternative ways of doing this, and we don't feel that those have necessarily been looked at sufficiently. Thank you. That's really informative. You know, we do feel like we're coming on almost an hour, and I feel like we could talk <laughs> for a very long time. But I also wanted to bring up the fact that this summer you're bringing back the concerts at Slane Castle. I think Harry Styles is playing in June, and it, it's been maybe dormant for a couple of years because of the pandemic. So I wondered if you could tell us what it's like to have 80,000 people come to your house and sit on your front lawn and watch a rock concert. Um, well, my first gig, as I said, uh, right, right at the beginning was, was in 81. I was only six years old for that one. Um, uh, so, <laughs> um, but it's going to be really um, uplifting, to be honest. You know, our last gig was Metallica in 2019. Uh, we do need that concert income. It's really important in terms of making this business model work to help finance the cost of running running the estate and, and maintaining its archaeological and, and all of the heritage that goes with it. But, you know, um, I'm just looking forward to the buzz of, of, of hearing, you know, that vibration go through the chest, the bass, the whole lot, and the buzz of the crowd. Slain is quite a spiritual experience, and I think this is why artists love to play here so much, because it's not a stadium. You know, you, you're in a field, You've got the River Boyne flowing behind the stage. You've got the castle floating above the crowd in this beautiful natural amphitheater. And you're with a predominantly Irish crowd. And let's be honest, uh, the Irish know how to, you know, know how to show, uh, show an artist a good time and, and be a receptive and, and, and engaging audience. So it's, it's, it's just a magical experience. And I, I think um, we people who come back to Slain, regardless of who the artist is year on year because of that. And in some cases, you know, multi-generational, you know, their, their parents brought them and now they're bringing their own kids and it's, it's a wonderful day out. And I think Harry Styles is going to knock it out of the park. You know, we've gone from, from Metallica to the other end of the spectrum. He's one of the biggest artists in the world at the moment. And I think it's going to be an immense gig. So, yeah, looking forward to that in June, slain, uh, you know, slain rocks, and, and it'll be nice to see it do it again in 2023. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us to talk today. It was an awesome conversation. And we'll speak again soon, right? Yeah, no, my absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you so much, guys. And uh, hopefully look forward to welcoming you back to, to Slane at some stage for, for another another Boyne Valley feast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we would love to. Great stuff. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.